1: The following podcast contains explicit language. Really, guys, we mean it today. Not good for kids. It's Friday, November 4th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. And you perhaps have been feeling anxiety about news lately. So I have crafted, handcrafted, artisanally crafted, the perfect show for you with soothing insight mellow poll results, a chamomile tea of margins of error, and an oatmeal and lavender bath of forecast models. And we'll wrap up with a looks like a pump, feels like a sneaker of early voting tallies. Now, I know you're anxious because I'm, well, I would say I'm anxious, but I do have that condition that precludes anxiety. But I hear you. I hear you, concerned Democrat, but I also hear America I hear what America is saying, like a brook through my backyard, the low, burbling murmur of accusation and denial and umbrage and a little bit of white supremacy. Some people are dealing with this anxiety in a very specific way. Emily Bazelon mentioned it on the Political Gab Fest.
0: Try to knock on doors in a swing state, either side.
1: But That's another
0: way to manage anxiety, to like walk
1: into the heart of the beast and try to do something about it. And this citizen explained to radio station WNYC why she was volunteering to call voters in Florida. I am here today because it's supposed to help my anxiety about the election. And I had to do something. Hold on. This this has just been handed to me. It's from the Persuadable Voters of America. It says, hello, we are not your Xanax. See that mat in front of my front door? Read it. Read it. What does it say? What does it say? It says, welcome. It does not say Prozac. I am not here to help your mood. But I get it. I get it. I get your worry. And you know, I was thinking about it too. I was thinking about Trump's path to victory, and I am worried about one part of it. We played that warning at the top of the show. Here's where it kicks in. See, I think that Trump might do quite well with the fuck vote. He's going to get the fuck it vote, the who cares? Things are going to hell anyway. He's my ripcord. And he's going to get the fuck that vote, which is more. Pointed and more defiant than the fuck it vote, but similar. He's definitely gonna get the fuck her vote. He's gonna get the fuck if I know vote. Howie, how can you vote for Trump? What's his stance on the issues? Fuck if I know. He'll get all the fuckwits and the fuckwads and most of the fuck ups. So what can she rely on? Just the we're fucked vote. Now I know it's fashionable to claim not to give too many fucks, but people give fucks. Fucks are still given. And when the given fucks, translates to votes, which is really the point of politics and campaigning. Well, at that point, you got to worry who's going to be the fuck face who lands atop fuck mountain, Mount Fuckstein, or as the Iroquois said, fuck So I do all I can do, which is to give you a spiel imagining how Hillary Clinton can turn a grievous flaw into a fun-filled asset. But first, perhaps the source of your angst is a three-digit number one between 537 and 539. Well, whiz kid Harry Enton of 538 is on, and I want you to listen closely and carefully to what he says. 538 has been generating a number, a percentage chance that Hillary Clinton wins. It's probably lower than you want it to be. But really listen and parse Harry's language. He's a company man. He's not going to defy his overlords. But I think you will find some sucker in Harry Enton's words the defender is a beautiful car but beauty is of course sometimes only skin deep not with the defender let's talk about the interior it's robust built with integrity yes it's designed iconically the exterior that's what compelled me my, my neighbor jay says mike you see what's on the block it's a Defender." And I look down the block, and indeed there is. And me, and Jay the neighbor, and Michelle, we gather around the Defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, oh, I don't want to make this a little too tawdry, but we lust, or perhaps we gvel. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures the Defender family Features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. So it's tightening not just the race, but your chest. If you're one of my many freaked out followers who are demanding a Trump anxiety hotline, I'm just going to do it in real time or quasi real time delayed and possibly edited with Harry Enton, senior political writer for 538. We're going to talk about five thirty eight, the polls, his polls and emotions. Hello, Harry. Hello. So you and your uh, compadres over there, you and the other Ombres at 538 were talking online, thus I got to listen to it. And they, someone put up 10 levels of poll fretting from level 10 freak out all the way down to panic, alarm, fear, distress, worry, anxiety, three would be unease, consternation, and concern. And you were asking each other, how freaked out should Democrats can be? And some of the other 538 writers would say, you know, four or five, like worry or distress. Nate Silver said five or six which is worry and distress, and you just said Democrats should be a 3 and Republicans should be a 7. And when they asked why, I thought you gave the best answer, which was... It was essentially that's where our model has the odds of each of them winning. Democrats have uh, about a seven or
0: Hillary Clinton has a 70 percent chance of winning or there are in about while Republicans have a 30 percent chance of winning. So or Donald Trump does. So you just flip those around. Donald Trump has a 70 percent chance of losing. Ergo, Republicans should be a seven while Hillary Clinton has a 30 percent chance of losing. Ergo, Democrat should be at a three.
1: Yes. And so I think Nate pushed back with, ah, but the stakes are higher maybe for Democrats or, okay, fine. We're not going to ask you to get into the heads of people and to define what freak out should be. It's very subjective. But do you just, do you stand by the numbers? The numbers are the numbers. Your model has 70% chance of winning for Clinton and that's, that's it? Or is there, are there other Textures? Are there other subtleties that we should look at?
0: Well, I'll point out a few things. Number one, obviously, we produced the model. We think it's a pretty good model, but there are some other models out there, some of which are better built than others. And most of those have Hillary Clinton with a higher percentage chance of winning than we do. So I think that's something to take into account.
1: I agree with you. And let me stop you there because you look at polls and 538 rates polls, and you might give a poll an A, but you would never say just look at that poll. You'd say look at all the other polls. Now, the other models, which is which are Upshot and Princeton Consortium and Daily Kos, uh, they all have Hillary Clinton as at least an 80% chance of winning. So take them into account, you say, just because it's generally a good thing to do when knowledge is better than not having knowledge, or take them into account for a reason that the average of— insight is better than just one person's? Well, I, th-
0: I think it's a little bit of both. Remember, we're making certain assumptions um, about what we think is the best way to judge where race is going. Our model's a little bit more sensitive, for instance, to later poll trends. And obviously, over the past week, some of those poll trends haven't been too favorable for Hillary Clinton, but it could be a head fake. And so that's why I think it's important to look perhaps at a model you know, like the New York Times upshot model, which doesn't react to the polls nearly as quickly. And so you get a better understanding, I think, of okay, if this trend line is actually really real and it's as real as the polls present it right now, then our model is going to be a better predictor of what's going to occur. If, however, there's a little bit of a head fake going on the polls, perhaps a model that's slower to adjust and takes a longer term average like the upshot model will be better to understand where this race is actually going to end up. So I think it's a little bit, you know, we want you, if you're a consumer, you want knowledge, but at the same time, these models differ for good reasons.
1: Yeah. But the past elections have shown that the polls closest to election day, in fact, are better and should be weighted much more than polls taken a few weeks out. Sure. I mean, look, uh, that's absolutely the
0: case. Now, in most elections, the races are pretty stable. So that you know, the models don't differ very much. You know, if you look at where the state polls were at this point in 2012, the state polls right now looked a lot like the state polls a few weeks ago at this point in 2012. The national polls, however, we saw that Barack Obama gained in the final few weeks, and that was a correct judgment. He did, in fact, gain in the final few weeks. So, you know, it was it, it was the case that you should in fact look at the final polls but in this year there's no guarantee we could see a swing towards hillary clinton in the final weekend if you look at the abc washington abc news washington post poll for instance you see that hillary clinton is back up from her low level and who is to say other polls won't do the exact same thing
1: Yesterday on the show, I was talking about that poll because it was cited so often on the ABC show this week because it's an ABC show, but also because it was stunning. It showed Trump with the lead. And I just look at anything that went from 12 to 6 to 4 to 1 and now back to, what is it, 3 the other way. It just seems much more volatile than I know the electorate to be. Should I take the volatility of any one poll into account?
0: Well, I think the fact is that what was going on there is probably some non-response bias, which is essentially that Democrats didn't answer the phone and as large of numbers as Donald Trump supporters did during that time period, because perhaps they were a little upset with the news that was coming about about Hillary Clinton's email, private server and Anthony Weiner, even though they'd end up voting on Election Day. So when I see polls that are that volatile, I recognize that that swing is almost certainly not real. And what you need to do is take an average of a longer span of time with those polls. And if you do so with the ABC News Washington Post poll, you have Hillary Clinton ahead somewhere in the neighborhood of four to six points. And that's where it seems like that poll is heading right now as we head towards Election Day.
1: I've heard so much more about non-response bias in this election than any other elections. Do you think it's just being talked about more or it is more of a... Go ahead.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, I think it's absolutely being spoken about more. I think one of the great things about this election cycle is that we have taken, to some extent, things that have been spoken about in the campaigns. And if you speak with the Clinton people, they will tell you and talk your head off about non-response bias. And we've seen it move into the mainstream, whether it be a blog like ours, a blog like The Upshot whether it just be people on Twitter who formerly work with campaigns. We get a real understanding, I think, more so in this campaign than in any other, of what's going on in the actual campaigns, the techniques that they are using. And I personally think it's led to a better informed public.
1: Harry, you wrote an article today, headline, Trump is just a normal polling error behind Clinton. First question, did you choose that headline? Uh, Do writers choose their headlines? Come on, you know, you know better than that. Well, that headline, that headline, I think, would freak people out, probably interpret that headline as meaning, oh, my God, it could just be for one small mistake that Trump is really ahead. But what do you really mean by that headline in your argument?
0: Well, essentially, what what the article gets at is I look at national polls going back, the final weekly average of national polls going back to 1968 and see how predictive they were of the outcome. And there have been a number of times where the polling has been off by three percentage points or more, and that is roughly Hillary Clinton's lead right now in the national polling average. So if you're looking based solely upon history, it would not be out of the realm. In fact, it wouldn't be that abnormal to have a three percentage point error in the polls right now. And that could lead to Trump winning the popular vote. Of course, as the piece points out, it could also lead to a wider win for Hillary Clinton, which to me is more than possible.
1: Of right. Yeah. I, w- I would also I look at those statistics, though, if I were to try not to freak out a Hillary Clinton uh, supporter and point out that there has only been one time since 1968 when the candidate who the poll said was leading actually wi- wound up losing. And that candidate was George W. Bush in 2000, who did lose the national vote, but he was still elected president. So another way to look at that is there's never been a polling error so bad that the guy we who we thought was winning actually lost.
0: That's another way to look at it. Uh, I, of course, would point out that in most races, the race isn't as tight as some of the national polls indicate it right now. So, you know, you have to take that into account. And then the other thing that I would point out is that, you know, There have been plenty of times where there were no polling errors, right, or the polling errors were minimal, 2004, 2008. So the polls could also be right on. It's just a matter of what occurs, and we don't know what's going to occur yet. That's the beauty of this all.
1: Does your – does the 538 model take into account any statistics about actual early voting? No, That's – I'll say it. I think that's a flaw. Um Maybe it's too hard to do that's that. That's exactly right.
0: We have a very limited sample size to work off of an early voting. Most states have changed the rules significantly since that time. We obviously, if we were going to add early votes, we would want to get an understanding of how that exactly improves the model. And, you know, you could look at 2014 and the early vote in North Carolina, for instance. And I heard a lot of people argue that that early vote was going to be very helpful to Kay Hagan, the Democratic senator from that state, and it ended up being Tom Tillis winning with Election Day votes. One exception, one exception, which I've written about is the state of Nevada, where we do have a time trend, where we have party registration and we have a very and most people vote early. And right now, the early voting statistics in Nevada do not look like the polls in that state. The polls in that state look like a tie or very close to it, while the early vote statistics indicate that Hillary Clinton should be the favorite there.
1: Yep. I mean, I've heard... And John Ralston, who's the dean of Nevada politics... He's the only man
0: still left in Nevada who talks about (laughs) politics.
1: (laughs) Well, we had Steve Sebelius on the other day. He's very good. But yes, he's saying that too. And from what... You tell me. But from what I've seen out of North Carolina, and I think Nate Cohn's doing a very good job in the New York Times, the New York Times has given me some mixed messages, but he is saying that the North Carolina vote also seems pretty good for Hillary Clinton, which isn't to say that Democrats are simply leading in the early voting. We always knew that would go on, but he's parsed it and said that it looks, it's trending towards a Clinton victory in North Carolina. Have you looked at it to that extent?
0: Uh, I would say that the polls themselves probably look like that. Um, If you look, for instance, at the PPP poll that came out today. Hillary Clinton was up two in that poll. If you look at the New York Times Zone poll, which is what Nate is basically basing his thing off of, is there's nothing in the early vote data to suggest that that poll is wrong, that they are modeling the electorate correctly. And if they are, then it's just a matter of making sure that the people didn't change their minds who they called. And so I'm not sure I would be as strong as saying the early vote data looks good for Hillary Clinton. It doesn't look to me necessarily bad. There's nothing in the early vote data to suggest that the polls are wrong. And if there's nothing in the early vote data to suggest that the polls are wrong in North Carolina, that to me indicates that Hillary Clinton's going to win because she is leading in most of the polls in that state.
1: And by the way, if Clinton wins Nevada, sorry, I'll say it correctly. Nevada. Nevada. Clinton- yeah. If Clinton wins Nevada and North Carolina, she can lose Ohio, Florida and Pennsylvania and New Hampshire and still win. And, and and another another path to victory type argument, if she wins Pennsylvania and almost any other real swing state like North Carolina, she can't lose.
0: If she wins Pennsylvania and Nevada, then she probably can't lose. The, yeah. the, the paths for Trump are limited unless he breaks through in a state. That He's not expected to win right now. One of those could be Pennsylvania. Another one of those could be Michigan. But when you look at the polls that have come out from those states, although they have indicated that Trump has closed there, none of them indicate that he is leading there or really anything close to leading there with Hillary Clinton generally polling. 47, 48, 49, very near 50 with third party candidates not doing terribly this time around, certainly not as well as they were polling earlier in the campaign, but getting three, four 5% of the vote. It's a tough road.
1: Right. So your state, your model, 538 model has Clinton chance of winning North Carolina 51%. Does that seem right to you? Personally,
0: if if you know, if you're asking, am I betting again if I bet four, which direction Yeah, give me even
1: odds. I'm giving you even odds. if
0: you gave me even odds, I think Hillary Clinton would win in the state of North Carolina, okay.
1: Nevada, you guys have it as Clinton fifty three percent. I think
0: again, I'd bet against I bet on Hillary Clinton's side in the state of Nevada.
1: okay. And we've just shown that if she wins or we've just said that if she wins North Carolina and Nevada, she could lose even any cl- any state that's plausibly close and still. When the president?
0: Sure. So. I, I, I should point out that I feel more confident about where, where things stand in Nevada than I do
1: in the state of North Carolina. Better early election yeah. uh, statistics.
0: We have better statistics. We have Ralston. We know what's cooking.
1: All right. I think that's good. I think if you parsed everything, Harry, if, if our listeners parsed what you said, they're maybe feeling a little less anxious than uh, they were going in. And on the scale, I don't know. I don't. Again, they would maybe give it a uh, between a two and a three consternation and unease i
0: i i think that the key in all of this is that if you look at whether you look at our model or any other model hillary clinton is the favorite to win but you should still go out there and vote for either side you know depending on which one based upon everything that i know about your listenership there's more hillary clinton fans than donald trump fans um but you know I think voting in this particular case is important. The polls are close enough, as we've spoken about, that a polling error could shift things. And one way to ensure that a polling error doesn't shift things is to go out and vote for the candidate that you want to win.
1: Thank you, Harry Enton, senior political writer for 538 and human I voted sticker. Thank you, Harry.
0: You're welcome. And may the Lord bless upon you. <laughs>
1: Hillary Clinton has this tendency to utter the occasional clunky line. To wit. I call it trumped up, trickle down. Even yesterday, it just sounded so forced and uncool when she introduced pop star Pharrell at a rally. Are you really, really, really happy that we're here
0: tonight?
1: This, of course, wasn't as bad as the ne plus ultra of lameness. But I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. Now, Hillary herself knows she doesn't always stick the landing when it comes to rhetoric. And in fact, sometimes she goes face first into the vaulting apparatus. And she explains this by saying she's not the brilliant orator that Barack Obama is, or even that her husband is. Those who know Hillary say she has a wonderful sense of humor. Other close watchers of the campaign worry more about her sense of humor, but that's a story of substance, and I'm speaking of one of style, and I have some advice for Hillary Clinton. She needs to do more than just own or acknowledge this trait, or just show the ability to joke about her inability to make words take flight. What she needs to do is turn that flaw into an asset, and you do it by branding. I got two examples for you. One is Rice Krispies. You know when they were invented? Tastes good, but they make this weird sound. No one is going to want to eat this cereal with a weird sound. We don't want our foods to sound like something. Then they invented Snap, Crackle, Pop, and the sound became the biggest asset. Another example. Boston Red Sox had this great player, Manny Ramirez, fantastic baseball player, kind of a head case. Let me amend that. Total headcase. What manager Terry Francona did, and this was his greatest feat as a manager, and he's a fine tactician, and he knows how to handle a bullpen, but his greatest feat was to invent this paradigm. Manny being Manny. And once you had this heuristic, all the crazy stuff could be ascribed to Manny being Manny. So now we have Hillary and she utters these clunky lines and she says, oh, well, my college debt plan is the important thing. No, it's not good enough. That's not what's getting you elected. The bad lines are part of what's so hard about you getting elected. You don't just excuse the bad lines, you brand them. And there is already a phrase for this out in the culture, and that phrase is dad joke. So you say to yourself, all right, what do we do? How can we work with that? It's inapplicable to Hillary Clinton, clearly not a dad. Well, that's why it's funny. Have her do one of the Pokemon Go things and then say, oh my God, I just did it again. I uttered a dad joke she's the lady who utters dad jokes. And you take this idea and extend it to every aspect of her presidency. Take this all the way to the White House. Let's see. What are the flaws? Hillary is paranoid. Hillary is secretive. Hillary is controlled. And she struggles with spontaneity. So she's like monk. She's like beloved TV detective Monk, which ran for, I think, 37 years on USA. Or she's like one of those guys from the Big Bang Theory. I don't know. I've never watched the show, but I assume one of them is like that. We will come to love her for her quirks. Then you got Tim Kane, the lovable doofus. He's a relatable sidekick. You trot him out to explain her serious, serious flaws. No, not her serious flaws. Her lovable, lovable foibles. See, the thing is, people are dreading the future in America, even though empirical evidence suggests otherwise. I say we have to take this whole experiment and recast it as a grand sitcom. The White House under Hillary Clinton will be fun, it'll be weird, the gifts will be great, and in the background, she will be driving unemployment lower and gradually, though not immediately, beating back ISIS. Like Manny, she has got to keep producing on the field and in the stat sheets, but eventually will come to groan and accept that she's just dead. Dad, joking. She's the stiff, quirkily, paranoid, compellingly unspontaneous protagonist who lets Secretary of State Biden get all the zingers. This show will not only be greenlit, but probably renewed. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson's anxiety level is tender when pierced with a fork. Just producer Chris Berube's anxiety level is fragrant. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, anxiety level has been described as caramelized. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, his anxiety level is flash fried then pan roasted. The gist I lack the ability to produce anxiety, so instead I will give you the UK threat level since that system was invented, starting in 2006. Are you ready? Severe, critical, severe, critical, severe, substantial, severe, substantial, severe. Don't you feel better? Oon peru da and thanks for listening.